As we begin tonight, I'm going to pass around this part of a sheaf of wheat. Um, I couldn't get a lot. I was glad that I was able to find this much. This is this year's green. Uh, it's not ripe yet because we're preaching Ruth before re- wheat gets ripe in Ohio. So uh, it would normally be golden colored. I think you're all familiar with that amber waves of grain that are referred to. But you can see the heads of grain. You can see how they would, uh, as they would cut the grain in the field, uh, probably the men cutting, and then the ladies would come, the maids would come, and they would gather these, and they would use some of the straw itself to tie the bundles. I cheated and tightened the straw uh, with a twist tie, (laughs) which Ruth did not have available to her. They weren't invented until David was king. But anyway... Uh, at least it gives you the idea. Um, and I, since uh, we met two weeks ago, I did some more research on um, the history of some of the hand tools that they use. Uh, they did not have the scythe, the big uh, scythe that I brought. Uh, they did have small hand sickles, but I found out that at that time in history, they probably had blades that were flint more often than metal. So some of you have seen flint arrowheads and spearheads. So imagine trying to cut grain with flint. And that's what Ruth was doing out there under the Middle Eastern sun all day for several weeks in order to help take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and in order for them to survive. So I passed this around just for you to take a look at, to be reminded a little bit. We're so far removed in our culture from uh, some of these agricultural things that uh, we're just trying to help refresh and stir up our minds. So we go tonight to the book of Ruth. And I want to share with you one general statement, which I think is helpful for us to consider whenever we open our Bibles and turn back to these passages of Scripture. There is a general truth that when you open your Bible, you should try to forget everything that man has discovered in the last several hundred years. They did not have machines. They did not have gasoline internal combustion engines. They did not have steam-driven engines. They did not have electricity. They did not have the modern means of transportation that we have. Most people worked with their hands to make a living, except for the wealthy who managed their estates and their affairs by hiring other people to do the manual labor. Even if you lived in a town or a village, you were not far removed from agriculture. Most people, even who lived in a town, would have a plot somewhere of garden vegetables or things that they would try to grow. And when you and I read the Bible, we need to try to turn back the time and put ourselves back into an agricultural society, especially in the Old Testament, a people that were dependent upon the land. 
Uh, they, if they ran out of food, they couldn't run down to Walmart or Giant Eagle or Heinen's. They couldn't go to the freezer and take out something they stuck in the freezer last winter. They didn't have cans on the shelf. They didn't have prepared foods. They didn't have boxed foods. They had raw materials to work with. And it's important for us to try to remember these things as we study the Bible. Obviously, in the book of Ruth, having some concept of that agricultural background is very helpful because when you read chapters 2 and 3, it is very much about the agriculture of the time. I'm going to uh, take some time here to read part of chapter 2. And then we're going to go back to some other passages of Scripture and consider a principle in the Old Testament that is part of the covenant of the Old Testament. In chapter 2, Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem. Ruth goes out uh, to the field to help glean so she can take care of her mother-in-law. And in verse 3 it says, She departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, which was of the family of Elimelech. I love the providence of God. It just happened that she came there. Verse 4, Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. I think the servant is saying that Ruth had come to him who was in charge, not necessarily to Boaz, but to the servant, and had asked for permission to glean. Thus, The servant reports, she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Notice in verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, so that you may eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. We have pictured for us in chapter 2 and the rest of the book our introduction to Boaz as a man who was, first of all, mentioned as wealthy, But much more importantly, he was a man of mercy. He was a man who was, I believe, probably a little bit unusual at the time of the judges. As we know, the book of Judges tell us that most of the Israelites were doing what was right in their own eyes, in their own mind. But here we have, tucked away in the hills of Bethlehem, Judea, a man who is moved with mercy toward those around him. So let's take a few minutes and consider this idea of mercy. If you will, go with me to Psalm 101. We're going to look at several passages here. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. 
I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? David probably had a good dose of teaching about loving kindness and mercy and justice because of his great-grandfather. It was probably some of that passed down from generation to generation. What is he talking about? The mercy and the loving kindness of the Lord. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy with me in chapter 14. We've mentioned the book of Deuteronomy several times already as background for the book of Ruth. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 28, Notice these instructions for Israel as they are preparing to come into the land. <clears throat> At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all of the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now if I have time to get some pictures together before next Sunday night, we'll show you a few pictures of some things from the Middle East of how they stored grain in the ancient world. There's a place at the city of Megiddo, the old fortress of Megiddo, there's a pit in the ground that is almost as big around as this room is large. And it's about 20 or 30 feet deep. And that was a grain silo where they would store grain, they would fill that pit, stone-walled pit, they would fill that with grain, they had a roof over it, and that was to provide for the whole city in a time of siege if they needed it. They would carve out cisterns out of the solid rock. Some cisterns were for storing water, and others were for storing grain. Other times they stored grain in ceramic jars and vessels. Why? so that the mice and the rats couldn't get at it. You do all that hard work to save the grain. You don't want anything else to eat it except your family. Each year, the Israelites were supposed to take one-tenth of what they produced and bring it to the town and store it. And then the Levites, who lived among the tribes, uh, remember the Levites never inherited any land. Their inheritance was the Lord. And they were dependent upon the rest of the people for their provision. So one-tenth was given, and the town deposited that grain, and it was used to feed the Levites. It was also available, notice in verse 29, for the alien, that's a, a foreigner who's living in your country, and for the orphan and for the widow. Everyone helped take care of those in need. That was the plan. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, you shall not close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing, then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, 
And your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all of your undertakings. There's a verse in the Proverbs that says, He that giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord. Or, or he that lendeth to the poor giveth to the Lord. One way or the other, I forget. But that's what he's saying here. In verse 11, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. Oh, that might raise a question for us in verse 11. If the Lord's going to continually bless the people, how can there be poor in the land? We'll never forget that not everyone is going to be a good steward and manager of their resources. Some are going to waste it away. And then others, as they saw people in the nations around them coming to Israel to seek the God of Israel and to seek refuge with God's people, there would be strangers that would be coming in that would be poor people. They would have perhaps slaves that had come in as slaves who had been freed, and they would have nothing. And so they were to be poor uh, among them. Flip over, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 14. <clears throat> you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. So Israelites paid their servants and their workers every day. That way the boss wasn't going to owe you a ton of money because he hasn't paid you in a month. That was to take care of people so there would not be injustice. Notice verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. They are to take care of these groups of people in society. There's no social security. There's no welfare program. There's no shelters they can go to. They're dependent upon the generosity of God's chosen people, and God was going to provide for them so much that they would easily be able to give away portions and still have enough for themselves. Verse 18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. They were, it was never to be far from their mind that if it wasn't for the mercy of God, they would still be slaves in Egypt. And so they should treat others that are in dire circumstances with compassion and mercy. <clears throat> uh, we don't have time to go into the whole idea of mercy tonight, but the God of mercy, the covenant-keeping God, the covenant loyalty of God in showing His mercy to His people was a very important concept in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Ruth. We'll see it in a few minutes. <clears throat> God basically told Israel, you don't deserve all this, but I'm going to give it to you. I've made a covenant with you to do all of this for you. And because I've made a covenant for you, there's absolutely nothing in the world that can stop me from doing these blessings for you. I will be loyal to you. And he proved that over the years. He always kept his covenant, even when Israel broke it. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. 
It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and for the widow. When you shall gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Don't pick your fields clean. Leave stuff there for those who are in need. This is, in, in addition to that, they were to take 10% of what they did harvest and leave it in the village for those who were in need. So there is a lot of ways here that the Lord is providing for those who are in need. It's also important for us to realize that what he is also saying is that the alien, the orphan, and the widow have to go out in the field and they have to work in order to eat. This is not a, just a free handout. This is not just a welfare system where nothing is expect, expected. It, it is being made possible that these people can work and make at least an existence for themselves by their hard work. Um, for the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to go into uh, a number of the scriptures in mind, but um, if you will, let's go to a few of the Psalms. <clears throat> Psalm 41. Now, I realize that some of these scriptures that we're going to look at were written after the book of Ruth, but I want us to see that this concept of mercy and God's mercy uh, are throughout the Old Testament. And when people in Israel understood how merciful God was to them, he expected that in turn they would be merciful to others. That they would not be stingy because God had opened the doors of heaven to pour out upon them his blessing. So when we see people in the Old Testament acting in mercy, in compassion, in, in, in a sense, the mercy concept of the Old Testament is very similar to our grace concept of the New Testament. There may be some differences there in some of the passages, but uh, generally speaking, it's a word demonstrating the magnanimous care of God to his covenant people. So in Psalm 41, notice the first three verses. For the choir director, a psalm of David how blessed is he who considers the helpless, those who need help. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. I don't think the Lord is saying he will deliver the helpless, but he's saying the Lord will deliver the man who helps the helpless. Verse 2, the Lord will protect him, keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed in his illness. You restore him to health. If they would keep the covenant and express the tender compassion toward one another in obedience to God and as a reflection of the character of God, God would take care of them. Over to Psalm 72. <clears throat> First four verses of Psalm 72, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your commandments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. God was very interested in 
people being taken care of in society instead of being afflicted unjustly. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people. Among the people, those who are afflicted, Solomon is saying, may God vindicate those who are being afflicted, those who aren't being taken care of. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. We don't have time tonight to go through the prophets, but we'll just look at one in Micah. When the prophets talked to Israel, they were scathing in their denouncements of the Israelites later in the Old Testament because they were treating the orphans and the widows and and others who were helpless with absolute hard-hearted, obstinate disregard and disrespect. They had no compassion whatsoever. There were widows starving to death in the streets of Jerusalem. And God finds fault with Israel because of their lack of compassion to the people. Why? Because that's a reflection of their heart for him. Their hearts are hard toward the Lord, so their hearts are hard toward others. And how God wanted his people to manifest the mercy of his own heart. What a delight it is as we go into the book of Ruth in a few minutes to find a man who is a reflection of the mercy of God. But while we're still here in Psalm 72, verse 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. Wow, don't go against the Lord by going against these people. Don't you mistreat widows. Don't you mistreat orphans. Don't you mistreat those who are in need, the stranger in your midst. Don't disregard them just because you're prejudiced against them because they're from some other place. You watch out because God's going to bring vengeance, his vengeance, against even Israelites if they would oppress the people that God told them to be compassionate toward. We find this all through uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Um, let me just share one more psalm, and that's back to Psalm 82. We'll take a look at one verse in the prophets, and then we'll go back to Ruth. Psalm 82, <clears throat> again, the opening verses of this psalm. <clears throat> God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Some of the Israelites were wicked men because they were not taking care of those in their midst that God told them to take care of. Their hearts were being demonstrated as being wicked. They were wicked men. And so we have these exhortations throughout the scriptures for the Israelites to be merciful to one another. Go with me to a passage most of you, I think, will recognize. Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Many of you have probably are familiar with verses 7 and 8. This is in the middle of a very clear 
uh, announcement of God's displeasure with Israel. God is actually bringing an indictment, the picture of, of a courtroom and an indictment that God is bringing against his own people because of their disobedience in these first uh, verses of chapter 6. And then we come down, uh, verse 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves, yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil, the poured out oil offerings of the people? Well, sometimes he did, yes. But you remember what God said to Saul through Samuel? The Lord would rather have obedience than sacrifice. These people were bringing tens of thousands of animals, but there was no obedience. There was no faith. He, there were rivers of blood pouring out of the Old Testament temple, but there was no obedience. There was no faith. There was no worship. They were disregarding the mercy of God. And then the next phrase, shall I present my firstborn for my religious acts? The people of Israel, some of the people of Israel were taking their firstborn sons and they were taking them down into the valley below the Temple Mountain, there in the valley, later known as Hanam, the Gehenna that Christ mentions, and there they, at, at a temple and an idol for Molech, they were offering their firstborn child upon the molten arm, the burning arms, burning their child to death as a sacrifice. And then they would catch the afternoon service at the temple. That's exactly what was going on in the context of Micah chapter 6. And they think they can worship one God over here and then come to the temple and bring an offering and everything's good. We did what God wanted us to do. We brought him an offering. What does he say in verse 7? Does the Lord take delight in all of these things? No, he doesn't. In verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And he doesn't say one thing about sacrifices. He doesn't say one thing even about worship of God. He talks about the effect of mercy in their hearts, the response to mercy in their hearts. The, the, the evidence will be that a man will do justice and he will love kindness and he will walk humbly with his God. If someone in the Old Testament was truly worshiping God, you could tell by how he treated the poor, the neighbor, the, the stranger, the servant, the slave, the widow, the orphan, the poor. They were to be so thankful to God for his mercy, so overwhelmed by God's mercy that they wanted to share it with everyone around them. Sounds a little bit like New Testament grace, doesn't it? God wanted his people to be a picture of this kind of mercy. Now let me just make a, a statement in brief about God's mercy, God's covenant-keeping loyalty or mercy. One of the great themes of the book of Ruth is the mercy of God. Naomi did not deserve mercy, I believe she and her husband had abandoned the God of the covenant. They had abandoned the land of the covenant. 
And she certainly was at least bitter against God. Instead of acknowledging that God is always good, that God is providentially taking care of things, God has something in mind, God has a plan. God is going to keep the covenant with me no matter how I feel, even though I don't see the hand of God upon me. Just call me bitter. Was she deserving the mercy of God? And then there's Ruth, a foreigner. She's like you and I, described in Ephesians chapter 2. We're apart from the covenants of Israel. We're not part of the chosen people of God. What claim do we have upon the mercy of God? We have absolutely none. But when they come back to Bethlehem, Ruth just happens to glean in the field of a man of mercy who just happens to be qualified as a kinsman redeemer, which we will look at next time, next week. But tonight, the focus on the man of mercy, a man of the covenant, a man who is loyal to his God. He loves his God, and he loves his neighbor, and he wants to care for those around him. A man who was a steward of the resources that God had given him. So let's go back to Ruth chapter 2, and let's take a look again at this man, Boaz. <clears throat> Ruth chapter 2, if you will. There are several things here in chapter 2. We're going to go through chapter 2 and chapter 3 tonight. Uh, just looking, first of all, at Boaz, making some comments also about Ruth. We talked about Ruth last time. It's, it's interesting to me that as the book of Ruth develops, as the narrative develops, Ruth is a better manifestation of the mercy of Jehovah God than Naomi. She is a wonderful woman of mercy. And for that woman of mercy, God has a man of mercy. And the mercy of God is going to overshadow Naomi, even though she doesn't even see it coming. He is going to provide for her a name of a descendant That we all know. Not a descendant genetically from her, but who has the birthright of her inheritance in the land of Israel. So we see Boaz. Now, here's a man that just happened, or a, a, a woman who just happened upon the field of Boaz, who happened to be a man of great wealth. He happened to be a man of substance. He was a good steward. Perhaps he had inherited a lot from his father. We don't know all of the details. But notice in verse 4, I read earlier, it describes how Boaz greets his workers, his reapers. It's, and most of you have had enough experience in one place or another in the work world to know that the CEO of the company doesn't come down to the break room and have lunch with the workers. I mean, it just, 
If your supervisor gives you the time of day, you, you, it's a good day, right? Now here's Boaz, the landowner, and he comes from Bethlehem out to the fields and he greets the reapers with a blessing from the Lord. May the Lord be with you. He blesses his workers. Well, that's a pretty good way to start the day. Some of you would like your boss to do that. I hope that happens someday. If not here in, the, in glory, it will. May the Lord be with you. And they respond, and may the Lord bless you. This was not just a, a Middle Eastern cultural greeting. There probably was some element of that, a, a respect being shown to the owner. But this is a man genuinely asking God to bless his workers. These are workers who have received mercy from their boss, and they willingly express a desire for God's blessing upon their boss. This is a picture of a godly man in the Old Testament. Then, having come down to be with the reapers and to see what's going on to supervise his supervisor. Verse 5, Boaz said to his servant who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? As he's looking over his crews out there in the field, he perhaps sees someone who's uh, new. Well, actually, you know what I think it was? Uh, we'll, we'll actually come to this a little bit later, but I suspect that Ruth was still in black. You read later when, it, when, Ruth, when Naomi tells her to change clothes and get ready to go to the threshing floor. I think Naomi is telling her, take off your black morning clothes and present yourself as eligible as a bride to Boaz. But I get ahead of myself, but you see, whether she was in black or not, Boaz sees her in the field. That certainly would explain why he can pick her out if she's in black. So the servant gives the account of how the woman had come. Naomi, uh, let me mention this about Ruth in verse 7. She had humbly requested to glean. She hadn't come demanding her right as an alien. She hadn't quoted Deuteronomy 24. She didn't come and insist on it. She came and humbly requested the opportunity to glean in the field. And so we saw before her industriousness, her hardworking uh, effort to take care of her mother-in-law. So when Boaz hears about this, we find another conversation going on in verse 8. So Boaz addresses Ruth, and he says, Listen carefully, my daughter. Now, are we missing something here? Had Boaz ever met Ruth before? He's never met her before. But he speaks to her with a term of general endearment and compassion. Do you see that? Here's a man whose heart is already compassionate. He was compassionate before Ruth came along. But his heart is compassionate, and he calls her daughter. Now, it's, it's very possible that she was literally young enough to be his daughter. There's some implication of that as we go on. He, he was evidently... Uh, at least somewhat older, significantly older, whether it was old enough to be her dad, I don't know exactly, but it, it's very possible. So he's kind and he's compassionate to her. He gives her instructions. Do not go to glean anywhere else. 
stay right here in my fields, stay by these maids, the maids who were bundling the sheaves and tying them up and stacking them up to be later delivered to the threshing floor. And then he says something very interesting. He said, let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. When they finish this field, follow them, go to the next field, stay with my crew, because I have commanded my crew, the servants, not to touch you. Oh, that's interesting. At the end of verse uh, of chapter 2, notice verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, Boaz's maids, so that others do not fall upon you in another field. She stayed close to the maids of Boaz. Evidently, there was enough prejudice among some of the Jews. They were hard-hearted enough toward aliens that if they saw this Moabitess in their prejudice, that the maids may have run her out of the field. The servants might have taken a whip to drive her away. We don't know what exactly the, the danger was, the potential hazard. But it was, Boaz recognized, uh, Ruth, you know, it's hazardous, it's potentially hazardous for you to be out here because not everyone is going to treat you well, but stay with my workers. And I have instructed my whole staff how to treat you. They're going to they're watch out for you. You stay with them. You're part of the group. And, and then he extends even greater kindness to them. Not only has he protecting them, but when you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. The servants would draw water for the whole crew. He says, help yourself. Not just help yourself to the well. Help yourself to the water that's already drawn. Let my people serve you. A beautiful picture of compassion and mercy and kindness. He doesn't owe Ruth anything. He doesn't know her. Recognizing how much compassion is being shown to her, in verse 10, she falls on her face. She bows to the ground and she says, Why have I found favor in your sight? that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. This, this is overwhelming. What is going on? And we have to love Boaz's reply. He basically says, Ruth, your reputation has preceded you. And I want to treat you with the same kind of compassion you've shown to your mother-in-law. Naomi, the news of who you are and the character of your heart has gone before you. All that you have done, verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. Okay, so news travels fast in a small town, especially in family. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. She has a testimony that she's come as a believer and he wants to help take care of her. And there's, there is no apparent selfishness on, in, on his part in any way. He's just simply wanting to help a person who is in need. He no doubt wants to help Naomi. 
And he realizes he's extending that care to Naomi when he helps her. So she responds in verse 13, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed you have spoken kindly to your maidservant, even though I am not like one of your maidservants. I, I'm not an Israelite, I'm a foreigner, and yet you have taken care of me in this way. And, and it continues, verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz comes and, and calls her to come over with the crew. He says, come on over and have some of the bread and dip it in the, the vinegar. <clears throat> Most of us don't grasp the fact that <clears throat> silverware is a relatively recent invention in human history. Now, the chopsticks have been around a lot longer than silverware. But in most of history, most of the peoples of the world, in fact, today, still eat with their fingers. They take bread or meat or something, sometimes they dip it in some sauce, and then they eat it. And that's the way they did it. The, the bread was there in baskets or whatever. They took some, they dipped it in sauce, and they ate it. And that's exactly what's being pictured here. And he invites her basically to the table, a stranger, a foreigner. So she sat beside the reapers, and I love this next statement. He served her roasted grain. Boaz was not an arrogant, dictatorial, selfish, self-centered, mean, ornery, slave-driving master. He was a kind and benevolent Lord, master, and ultimately, he's a great picture of Christ to us in this book. So here we have Boaz treating her with kindness. So she ate, and she was satisfied, and she had some left, and she took a doggy bag home with her. <clears throat> she saved up some of that grain for her mother-in-law. And then in verse 15, after the mealtime, this would be late in the day, she rose to glean, and we earlier said she gleaned until the evening in verse 17, and then in the evening, she still had to beat out the grain, and then she had to carry it home. And some of these days, because of the kindness of Boaz, this girl is carrying home 40, 50, 60 pounds of grain at night. Okay? This girl was no wimp. This was a hard-working girl wanting to help her mother-in-law. Notice again the generosity, verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not insult her. Not just the, the stems that drop off, but let her pick up some of the sheaves that fall, by the way just like Deuteronomy talked about it. You shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean it, do not rebuke her. That, that little small uh, sheaf that's going around, that, that's probably about the size of some of the handfuls they laid on the ground. Just toss it down and let Ruth pick it up. This man is taking care of her. He's helping. He's helping someone in need. He's a man of mercy. So she gets home at night, shows her mother-in-law the grain from dinner, as well as the grain that she has harvested in verse 19. Naomi says to her, where did you glean today, and where did you work? 
may he who took notice of you be blessed. And so she reported that she went to this place, and here was some guy named Boaz. Now, at this point, Ruth knows nothing, as far as we know, about who Boaz is. He's just the farmer that helped her. Well, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Wow, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. This guy is our relative. In fact, he's one of our close relatives. It just so happens. It just so happened. It just happened to be a close relative. In verse 20, when she says, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. The word kindness there is the Old Testament Hebrew word which we do not pronounce well and translate into English or transliterate into English because we don't have the letter that makes the sound. But it's, if you write it in English, it's roughly H-E-S-E-D, hesed. Uh, it, the H had kind of a hard sound like a chesed. Sometimes you'll see it spelled C-H-E-S-E-D. It's a word that you would do well to recognize if you see it in your Bible study notes, in your uh, study Bible notes somewhere, because it is the word that God used to talk about his covenant loyalty to his people. It's translated in the King James. It was consistently translated loving kindness, the loving kindness of the Lord. Some other translations aren't as consistent in translating it, but you'll see here it's translated as kindness. It's the word hesed. It is a reminder in this book that the mercy of God is an underlying theme. And Naomi, whose name meant pleasant, but just call me bitter because I went out full and I came in empty and the hand of providence has been against me, all of a sudden has a wake-up call. When Ruth comes back with a bushel of grain and a good report of a kind man named Boaz, who just happens to be a close relative and, and could legally help them out of the bind that they're in if things go well, and she sort of suddenly remembers the mercy of God. And we're going to see the mercy of God continue to unfold in this book. Let me mention one more thing about Boaz and mercy in chapter 3. Next time we will try to mention some things about these marriage rituals. And there are are some things about this description of this uh, threshing floor scene that we do not have information about. When Ruth uh, goes and lays at his feet uh, at the threshing floor, that evidently in the culture was a way for a girl to propose or to request marriage. Sounds kind of weird to all of us. And we don't have very much information in ancient documents anywhere explaining how that started, what it meant, what it signified. Uh, but, but laying herself down at his feet was, and, and, and having his uh, outer garment, his cloak that he would use as a blanket, uh, cover her up as well. He was basically requesting to come under the protection and care 
uh, of him asking for marriage. All right? Notice his response. Uh, so, middle of the night, verse 8, he wakes up, and, and there's a woman lying at his feet. Okay, that's startling. Um, he's, 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 he's laying on the grain pile on the threshing floor, and the reason for that is because he was the security system. All right? You got, you, you got fresh grain laying there in a pile, maybe dozens or hundreds of bushels. Every idiot out there knows it's a whole lot easier to come and shovel a bag of grain than it is to go out in the field and harvest it. So it was, it was a time they had to be careful for thievery, for people stealing the grain, um, which is a whole other discussion. Uh, the psalmist talked about sowing in tears and reaping in joy. There were times in Israel's history when they sowed the seed of the grain in the field, they sowed weeping because they had no idea whether they would ever eat a bite of what they harvested, of what they sowed. The, the Midianites might come over the hill and kill them before they could harvest it. Or they might harvest it and the Amalekites would come over the river and destroy them and steal their crops and they might starve to death. And so they would sow in tears, but the promise of God was they would reap in joy. It would be safety. So here they are, security system on the grain pile to keep it from being stolen. And, and all of a sudden there's this woman lying at his feet. Sometime in the middle of the night, he says, who are you? I can imagine he didn't say that real loud. Who are, who are you? What, what are you doing? What? He says, I'm Ruth. You're maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. I could think of some other ways she could have communicated that, like when she saw him in the field the next day. But there's something culturally going on here that, that is beyond our, our grasp. And if, there's, if there's information out there, I haven't found it about some of the cultural implications of all of this. But notice what she says, spread your covering over your maid, because you are a goel, a kinsman redeemer, and we'll get to that next week. You are, you are qualified. You are the one who is close enough relative to raise up seed in the name of my dead husband and to help us in our time of despair and financial difficulty. And what I want you to notice is the answer of Boaz in verse 10. He could have been very angry. He could have been very upset. He could have said, who do you think you are coming in here, private property, coming in here in the middle of the night, laying down at my feet, you could destroy my reputation? What do you think you're doing? He could have responded very badly. But instead, he, I think, instantly recognizes that there's the hand of God in this, and he says, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. Another term of compassion endearment, tenderness. He, he, he wants to take her under his arm in a sense of even helping in some way, whether it goes as far as being the husband. But he, he still uses this endearment. My daughter, you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. What in the world is he talking about? The word kindness, again, is the word hesed or mercy. Loving kindness, 
He's saying, Ruth, he said, you have been kind to your mother-in-law. You came back here from Moab when you didn't have to. You have been working in the fields for her. You didn't have to. You've been taking care of her. You accompanied her in her grief. You didn't have to. You're putting up with being a stranger in a foreign land. You didn't have to. You have been kind in every way to your mother-in-law. And then he says to her, Ruth, you are asking me to marry you. You are extending a kindness to me that is far greater even than the mercy you've shown to Naomi. Because everybody knows you could have had anyone, Naomi could have arranged a wedding with any one of the young men in the village, but you pick an old geezer like me. That's mercy. Ruth, you've been merciful to me to ask me to be the one to be your husband. We don't know what the age difference was, but it was enough that Boaz recognized her request as an act of mercy to him to give him the opportunity instead of someone else. So in verse 11, he says, My daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. I have no no qualms whatsoever about fulfilling my kinsman responsibility and opportunity. I have no question about your character. I have no hesitation whatsoever in any way about you. However, Don't you hate that word? However, there is one other person who's actually a closer relative than me. And I have to run it past him first. And I think at that point, Boaz is hoping, although it doesn't say this in the text, I grant you that. I think at this point, Boaz is saying, I hope the guy doesn't want to do it. Because I think at this point, he is seeing in her the qualities of a woman that he would be delighted to have as his wife. Ruth, a woman of mercy. Boaz, a man of mercy. Two people with the testimony that God is merciful to us, and they wanted to be merciful to others And that is a reminder to us that if we have tasted that the Lord is good, we ought to be able to be good to others. If we have tasted the grace of God, we ought to be able to share it with others. There ought to be in us a very sweet disposition toward other people because that's the disposition our Father has had with us. What a beautiful picture this is in this book. I trust that you're enjoying it as you read through it.